One of my favorite parables is that of the lost son. There's a lot to it, but basically it's a story Jesus told about a young man who insulted his father by demanding his inheritance early, ran off to spend that money on wild living, and found himself destitute when the money was gone. In desperation, he returned to his father to beg for a job as a servant. But instead of being furious, his father was overjoyed and threw a party to celebrate his return. It's a great story, but I have a few questions. The text says that the father saw the son while he was still a long way off. I mean, how far was he? I wonder, because they didn't have glasses back then, and the father was old. I mean, how could he see that far? And what about the mother? I mean, where's she? Isn't the Bible into family values? So, so why isn't this family intact? I mean, did she die? Are they divorced? Why did the dad get custody of the kids? Anybody know the answers? No? This is one of the greatest stories of all time. It's changed millions of lives, and yet none of you know these basic facts? Obviously, my questions miss the whole point of the story. There was no mother, and no father or son either. This never actually happened. It's a parable. It's one of the many marvelous stories Jesus made up. So does that mean the story isn't true? No. This story communicates essential truths about God and the way we relate to him. This event never actually happened, but it's one of the truest stories of all time. So. What a shame to, for someone to d dismiss it because it's not literal historical reporting, or, or miss the point by asking the wrong kind of questions. And I bring this up because just like my questions missed the point of the lost son parable, so, I fear, many of us ask the Bible to answer questions it's not supposed to. That would be problematic all on its own, but it's compounded by the fact that we do the same thing with science asking it to answer questions it can't. And this leads to needless conflict and confusion when they seem to offer competing answers, forcing us to ask which one we can really believe. Right now, we're in a sermon series about the Apostles' Creed, and we're examining the declaration that God is the creator of heaven and earth. Few people argued much about evolution until about 300 years ago, and few focus on it today. But for the 300 years in the middle, this was a raging debate, and it was a major stumbling block for me as I was first coming to faith in Christ. I was so attracted by Jesus and the Christians I'd met, but how could I believe what the Bible says if science proves it to be false? After all, if the Bible gets this wrong, what makes us think we can trust what it says about God's love, Jesus' resurrection, or the possibility of forgiveness and eternal life? This delayed my conversion by several years as I tried to sort this out. So I want to consider the interplay of creation and evolution today. Not only because I want you to discover the life-shaping truths in Genesis about our Creator, but I also think that the way both Scripture and science were misused in that debate might give us insight about the ways we're misusing them today in our cultural debates about abortion, gender, sexuality, the climate, and vaccines, which have become stumbling blocks for many people by undermining the trust we could have in both science and scripture. 
I want to begin by opening to Genesis 1 that we read a few minutes ago. Like the story of the lost son, many of you know the basic outline. God created the universe in six days and then napped on the seventh. So if you snooze through my sermons every Sunday, apparently you're in good company. What does this story tell us? Some people have used it to answer questions about science and history. For example, by adding up the names of the people mentioned in the Bible, the 17th century Bishop Usher determined that God created Adam and Eve in 4004 BC, or about 6,000 years ago. That's interesting, but it creates tension with contemporary scientists who suggest a different timeline. Considering the evidence offered by the size and expansion rate of the universe, plate tectonics, fossil evidence, and genetics, the best guess is that the universe was created by a Big Bang 13 billion years ago. Our Earth is about 4.5 billion years old, and the earliest humans appeared up to 200,000 years ago. Some earnest Christians fought back against this, this apparent challenge to the Bible by pointing to flaws in evolutionary theory and proposing alternative theories of their own, three of which were most prominent. Those were young earth creation, which asserts that the Bible was created in six days, 6,000 years ago, but proposes that God created it to appear older than it is, including by creating it with fossils already in the ground. Alternatively, Old Earth creationists posit that each of the days in Genesis could represent an epoch extending millions of years instead of a typical 24-hour day. That is a linguistically legitimate interpretation of the Hebrew word day and recognizes that it's hard to measure a day prior to the creation of the sun on day four. Theistic evolution resolves this tension between scripture and science by asserting that God did create heaven and earth but did so through the evolutionary process. They suggest that, like I did with the prodigal son story earlier, perhaps we're asking the wrong questions about Genesis, creating a conflict where it doesn't exist. So let's look at this text ourselves. Sadly, I think most translations get us started on the wrong foot. It says in Hebrew, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. Going back to the King James translation of 1611, traditionally this is translated, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But a better translation may be, in the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and empty. That means instead of claiming to be the first instant of creation, what happens next took place early in the process of creation because the earth already exists. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The entire chapter follows this same pattern, repeating these same phrases. And God said, let there be a vault, and God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day, and the third day, and so on. It's interesting to note the odd order here. God created light on the first day, but no sun or stars to generate light until the fourth. He created vegetation on the third day before there was any sun or rain to nourish it. Of course, God can do anything, but it's strange that in the very next chapter we read, 
Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. We could point to many similar oddities. And it should raise questions that two incongruent creation accounts are written back to back. But we encounter a different type of problem as we skip a few chapters ahead. We learn that Adam and Eve were the first couple, and they had two sons. Clear enough. But after Cain kills Abel, who was he so afraid would kill him in revenge in Genesis 4? And in verse 17, whom exactly did he marry? Maybe an unnamed daughter of Adam and Eve? So his sister, which is a bit freaky and something the Bible specifically prohibits. But then the two of them moved to a city. A city? I mean, how can there be a city when there's only one family on earth? Perhaps this is why so many early Christians, long before Darwin, didn't read Genesis in the literal way some more recent Christians insist we must. For example, the great church father Origen, born in the second century, revered the scriptures, but didn't believe that Genesis 1 was a literal account of the creation of the cosmos. The colossal scholar St. Augustine in the 5th century shared that same view, as did Thomas Aquinas, a leading voice of Christian orthodoxy in the 13th century, and Jonathan Wesley in the 18th. These are very devout scholars who believed the Bible was absolutely true. And yet long before Darwin, all of them warned that misreading Genesis 1 and 2 literally might make us miss what they're really about just like arguing about his mother, might make us miss the point of the prodigal son parable. It's often suggested that we must choose between science and scripture. And yet, long before Darwin, Christians who believed the absolute truth of scripture did not believe Genesis described a literal six-day creation, any more than we think Jesus was describing a real family in the parable of the prodigal son. Both Genesis 1 and Luke 15 are totally true, but not literally true. So what is the beginning of Genesis about? It explains who God is, who we are, God's relationship to the world and our relationship to the world, God's relationship with us and our relationships with each other. It addresses sin, work, temptation, pain, pride, suffering, and the deepest longings of our souls. So to summarize, Genesis is more about who and why rather than how and when. I've preached hundreds of sermons from Genesis 1, so in this sermon, I'm going to skip over most of the individual ideas so that we can focus on the chapter's overall structure. The first thing to notice is that Genesis 1 is a poem. Evangelical Christians like me affirm that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Therefore, we believe the Bible is totally accurate. But contrary to the common perception, this doesn't mean that we take it all literally. In fact, in order to take the Bible seriously, there are parts we shouldn't read literally. Consider, for example, Isaiah 55, 12. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. If we take the Bible literally, we're forced to contend with the problem that trees don't have hands. So is this passage untrue? No. 
we immediately recognize that this passage is poetry, expressing a great truth in a genre that's not literal. Likewise, the poetic repetitive style suggests that Genesis 1 is not merely a list of facts. Let me show you how many theologians read it. Initially, the earth is formless and empty. So as this chart illustrates, the first three days correct the formlessness of creation by distinguishing light and darkness, sea and sky, land and plants. The next three days fill those formations with sun, moon, stars, fish, birds, and humans. The first three days correspond perfectly to the second three days. Some people turn to Genesis to learn the age of the earth or the sequence of creation, but that's not what Genesis is about. But that would be like a, a modern lawyer trying to learn how to do a state distribution from the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, that's not what it's about. Genesis 1 and 2 are not a precise scientific description of the way God made the world, but theological poems about who made the world and the relationships of everything in it. Contrary to what some neighboring cultures assumed, our Creator cares for us. Men and women both reflect God's image equally. And things those cultures worshipped, like sun, moon, and animals, are put in their right place. They aren't gods, plural, but gods, possessive. This poem is about authority and identity, not a, a recipe for how to bake a galaxy. So it's not necessary for the events in Genesis to match the historical order. And that's why the writer of Genesis sees no contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Does this mean they're not true? No. It only means that they're not literal, and I contend that there's more truth about theology, anthropology, ecology, spirituality, sexuality, and human dignity packed into this short chapter than entire encyclopedias contain. Like the parable of the lost son, it's truthful, just not historical. But if the lost son and Genesis 1 aren't literal history, then how do we know the story about Jesus' resurrection is. I mean, might that just be another poem? If not, how can you tell the difference between biblical poetry and biblical history? Well, usually it's obvious from the context. If I say that yesterday my friend drove me to the store, you understand I mean something very different than if I tell you yesterday my friend drove me up a wall. One is clearly literal. The other, clearly symbolic. Both may be 100% true. Jesus teased the literalism of people who didn't recognize the obvious metaphors when he said, you must be born again, or you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He was speaking life-changing truths and implying that they should have been able to distinguish between things that are symbolic and things that are scientific. One's not more true than the other. They're just different ways of expressing truth. So I'm not saying we shouldn't take Genesis 1 seriously. To the contrary, I'm suggesting we fail to take it seriously when we insist on taking it literally. In contrast to the poem in Genesis, Luke clarifies in the beginning of his book that he's reporting carefully researched history. Clearly, he expects to be read literally. The point I'm making 
is that we may still reject elements of evolutionary theory on scientific grounds, but Scripture doesn't preclude accepting evolution as the way God created the cosmos. When we get to Genesis 2, things are less clear. Some Christians insist that God literally formed the first man out of the mud and made the first woman from his rib, as described in Genesis 2. Others suggest that this looks a lot like poetry again. Both sides agree that the method of creation is not the main point. The great evangelical scholar John Stott suggested there may have been thousands of hominids already formed by an evolutionary process, and Genesis 2 simply recounts the moment that God breathed his spirit into them, giving them the uniquely human traits of self-reflection and moral reasoning. C.S. Lewis went much further, arguing that Adam and Eve were never intended to be thought of as actual people, but as archetypes who represent all of humanity. He suggests the story is not about an actual event, but the sin nature in all of us that causes us to pull away from God because we want to be our own gods. So we disobey his commandments and make ourselves miserable in the process. This explains why we feel so alienated from God and, and each other, and it also explains why we need Jesus to save us. The fact that Adam's name literally means humanity in Hebrew and Eve's name means life lend themselves to this archetypal interpretation. This does not mean this story never happened. It means that it happens over and over in every human who's ever lived. So rather than just being a story, uh, a historical story about some ancient ancestor, it's a story about you. This solves the biblical riddles about whom Cain married and the city they moved to, and it leaves plenty of room for God to have developed humans over any time scale he wanted. But what it also does is remind us why Christians need to have more humility about which questions they can answer from Scripture. But at the same time, some scientists need to be more humble about the answers they find in science. For example, while all science scientists agree that genetic mutation happens, as described by Darwin, no biologist can fully explain abiogenesis, how the first living organisms were produced from non-living chemicals. No one has been able to reproduce that, despite many decades of dedicated effort. And all scientists admit that our theories about what holds materials together require the postulation of dark matter, so-called because we can't see it, detect it, measure it in any way, but something must be there in order for our astrophysical formulas to work. In fact, those formulas insist that 95% of the universe is composed of something we can't see, describe, or detect, but must exist. So how any of these scientists could have the hubris to deny the possibility of God being there, to say nothing of angels and demons, is just silly. So if the data do not demand denying God, why do some scientists do it? Because it's not a scientific issue that compels them but the same spiritual issue at the heart of Genesis 1 and 2. Our Lord's ability to create implies the authority to command. <laughs> Just like we see in Adam and Eve, there's an impulse in all of us to deny that there might be someone more powerful and authoritative than we are. We, we don't want to worship God. We want to be God. The stories in Genesis about pride and sin are as true today as they've ever been. When well understood, science and faith don't conflict. They complement each other. Because science 
can allow us to see even more of the majesty, complexity, and beauty God created. Psalm 19 celebrates, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make Him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. The more we discover about the vastness of the universe, the bigger we realize our Creator must be. So science is a spiritual calling. This is why so many scientists also are believers. Among university professors, surveys find that the highest percentages of Christians are in the hard sciences — biology, chemistry, and physics perhaps because they're the ones who know best the limitations of science and spend the most time exploring the vast, vast wonders of creation. Francis Collins, who served as America's senior scientist as the director of the National Institutes of Health and head of the Human Genome Project, is also a devout Christian. Even though he used to be an atheist, his outstanding book, The Language of God, describes how science helped lead him to Christ. Many times I've had dinner with 40 or so professors, mostly from Harvard and MIT, and mostly in the sciences, but from all degrees of faith or atheism, to discuss the intersections between science and faith. During one of those dinners, Harvard astrophysicist Howard Smith explored the inexplicable coincidences required for a planet to support life. For example, the precise balance between the strong and weak nuclear force, gravity, and electromagnetism. Stephen Hawking has noticed that the, if the rate of expansion of the universe had been smaller or greater by one part in a billion, the universe would have collapsed immediately. Dr. Smith concluded that all this indicates the hand of a purposeful creator. As we discussed his proposals around our dinner table, the other scientists admitted that the mathematical odds against random chance seemed almost impossible. In fact, Robert Jastow, who was among the founding NASA scientists and a professor of geophysics at Columbia and Dartmouth, was an agnostic. But he wrote about some of his scientific colleagues who had initially resisted the Big Bang theory. He found their reluctance was not based on evidence, but because the Big Bang bore an uncomfortably close resemblance to the description in Genesis. He wrote, quote, the details differ. But the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time, in a flash of light and energy. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks, what cause produced this effect? Who or what put the matter or energy into the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who's lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He's scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer its highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. Why am I saying all this in a sermon about the Apostles' Creed? Because this fabricated conflict between science and Scripture has made many people needlessly doubt whether we can trust the Bible. We can. And what does it tell us? First, there is a God who knows everything. But whether you're a seminary professor or a science professor, you're not Him. So we all need curiosity and humility 
because none of us has all the answers. We need to bring these to our contemporary debates, including those about abortion, climate change, identity, sexuality, and vaccines. Last week, I heard someone claim that the science is settled about the distinction between biological sex and gender. Now, of course, that's not true, nor could it be. That's a question science can't answer. Because while it can describe what we are, it can't determine who we should be. On the other hand, while the Bible teaches that God created males and females, it doesn't prescribe a single way of living that out. For example, we see women in the scriptures who are mothers, prophets, political leaders, business owners, homemakers, and more. Likewise, we see that Esau was a, a rugged outdoorsman while his brother Jacob was a homebody and a mama's boy. Their story can teach us many truths, but it doesn't offer a single mold that all men must fit into. In the abortion debates, science can teach us about conception and viability but it'll never be able to tell us why human life has unique value or when abortion could be acceptable. Scripture is very clear on the first of those questions, but less clear than I'd like on the second. The Bible is also clear that God made humans responsible to care for creation, but we'll need science to figure out when climate change is dangerous and what part humans can even control. And we'll need patience because scientists will be wrong a lot on their way to the truth. The Bible is diminished when we treat it as a science book, but science becomes dangerous when it's treated as a religion. With dogma and high priests we can't question, I fear that I made this mistake during the pandemic. You know, grasping for clarity in a, 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 real, a time of confusion, I put more faith in Dr. Fauci than any human deserves. And I was critical of anybody who questioned him. Many people are now outraged that some of his claims have since proven to be untrue, but I'm more disappointed in myself for forgetting what the Bible says about human fallibility. Everybody has mixed motives and limited insight. So I trust the scientific process to help us discover more truth, but along the way, it gets a lot of things wrong. And there are many things it can't tell us. Science can help us find ingenious vaccines, but it can't tell us how to weigh the value of herd immunity against individual autonomy or physical health against spiritual and emotional health. I wish I'd brought those questions to the Holy Spirit instead of simply trusting the science. Not only do scientists get things wrong, but theologians and pastors do too. The Bible is authoritative but my interpretation of it is not. I have mixed motives and limited insight, so I need the humility to realize that I may not be correct about something, and you need the freedom to question me and disagree. We can learn from each other. This is why curiosity and humility are so valued at Hyrock. Even our smartest scientists know so little. I mean, they admit they can't even find 95% of the stuff in the universe, much less figure out what it is, and that's a reminder of how little we know about almost anything. The best theologians will tell you they've got God even less figured out. So we need to read every Bible verse in the light of the whole counsel of Scripture, listening to the Holy Spirit, 
and learning from the whole community of Christians, past and present, from cultures all over the globe. This is how God protects us from our prejudices and preconceptions that we tend to read into Scripture. So my first point is that we need to have adequate humility about how much we know and how much anyone can know. Second, in all the bluster of the science versus Scripture debates, I don't want you to miss what Genesis 1 is about. Genesis 1 reveals that we have a creator who has authority to give commands but cares for us deeply so we can trust those commands are for our good. And this is captured in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. If you think you're just a random collection of chemicals, then you have no obligations. But you also have no purpose or intrinsic value. The good news in Genesis is that God created us, cares for us, and has a purpose for us. You matter. Friends, people need to hear this now more than ever. Therefore, the final thing I want you to take away today is to be unashamed of the gospel. Because it's not just the truth about God and creation, it's the truth about you, who you are, why you're here, why we struggle and suffer and sin, and how we can find freedom and forgiveness through Jesus. I'm mildly interested in the age of the universe, I guess, but these, these are the answers all of us long for. So as we go into our laboratories and classrooms and companies or just get coffee with friends, I want you to know that we have no reason to be embarrassed about our trust in God. Indeed, it could be one of the greatest gifts you could share with someone. Some of the smartest people on earth, including some of the smartest scientists, agree that the smartest thing anyone could do is receive Jesus' forgiveness and invitation to a stored relationship with our Heavenly Father who created heaven and earth. Do not be shamed into silence about something so essential and life-changing. We have no reason to keep quiet about the reasons for the hope that we have and the God we've met. We can tell the world that our Creator and their Creator is more than the, the maker of mountains and microbes. He's our Almighty Father who revealed Himself most clearly in Jesus. Jesus, who confounded those they had thought they had everything all figured out. Jesus who was crucified. Jesus who was raised from the dead, even though it was impossible. And Jesus who's coming back to get us and bring us home forever. This is our Creator. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth.